Thank you, John, <clears throat> and the rest of the team, but especially John, since you're yet a different type of sick this week. So, dude, it's rough. Um, so, um, my wife, Ginger, deserves some recognition today. Um, she's managed to stay married to me for 25 years as of today. That's pretty cool. Yep. I think that's the uh, first candidacy for sainthood right there. I did a, uh, a wedding yesterday. A few of you were at the McBride wedding, um, uh, which, how's that cool for a name for a cup, the McBride wedding, right? Like, can't, um, but the, uh, there was, a, it's one of the reasons I did their wedding, um, usually I only, I only perform weddings when I really know the couple really well and that kind of stuff, and they're part of our church and great couple. I just didn't know them super well until we started doing the premarital counseling, but then as they start telling their story, you know, I always do that first meeting and we talk and start telling their story of how they started dating in October, and then he proposed in April, and then they were getting married on December 29th, and uh, they did all that month, the same month that we did it just 25 years ago, um, and so I was like, this seems, this seems ordained, like that you guys were, start dating the same month, started, and, and so anyway, it was a, it was a really sweet wedding, and uh, a beautiful thing. Sometime it would be fun on a Sunday morning, and maybe I will when we get near John 14 to talk about, even go through what a wedding ceremony looks like and why it does. Uh, that would be a fun explanation. Uh, Edgar was there, and afterwards he was like, you, you explain like why we do all these things in the middle of the, ser- in the, middle of the wedding, and I'm like, I guess that's just how I'm wired. I, I like people to understand why we're doing what we're doing, what, what this is all about. So, um, and also something that struck me this morning, so we, we rarely do this. We're just going to do one service thing, and, and it's not because of a lack of room in here or, or too few people in here. It's because <laughs> when we know, based on history, that there's, there's going to be a shortage of people to work with children, we have to adjust the schedule. That's the whole reason. I mean, if, you're on, if you've been on the leadership board any time in the last seven years, you know 90% of the decisions we make that aren't like, kind of like, hey, we think God is leading us to do this, it's, it's because of something to do with the kid ministry, having to make adjustments and that kind of stuff, which is, again, such an incredible gift for us as a church. But, um, but some of you got that fun experience that only Baptists can have of finding someone sitting in your chair this morning. Am I right? <laughs> how? Is that not that's just the best? And it's such a great reminder of how egocentric and, and self-absorbed we are when you go to church and for a second you're like, hey, oh, wait, this is church. Like, Probably should have a different attitude about this, right? Um, uh, that's awesome. It's one of my, those are some of my favorites. And, 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 and by favorite, I mean like heart-wrenching worst stories ever is when you hear about somebody who visited a church and was actually, and it, this happens, actually told to get up and move because they were in someone else's seat or someone else's pew. And you're like, I just, like, wow. I, I, what, what, that, that's such a fascinating conversation to have someday with God. I just, uh, like, good luck with that one. Um, so here we are, we're still in, it's, anyway, I just, when we shake things up a little bit, it's always fun to recognize just how frail we are and how in need of a Savior we are on even the tiniest little things. Um, and so as we're looking and, and wrapping up John 10 and moving into a couple of weeks of, <coughs> kind of like we did a couple of weeks looking at the feasts and festivals, I'm doing a couple of weeks um, on focusing in on what, it, what the church really is, what it means to be a member of his flock, um, which fits in with the beginning of the year, kind of like doing that anyway, just as a, as a realignment. We'll talk about that. But finishing up John 10, John 10, 17 has one of those verses 
that requires a little bit of conversation. Jesus is in the middle of, a, of talking. Um, this is in John 10, talking about him being a good shepherd. Um, the, the, com, the connecting point between um, leaving the, at some point, and we, again, we don't know exactly when this conversation happens. Is it immediately? As some people think, immediately after the John 9 conversation, is Jesus just still talking? Or is this meant to be a separate conversation? Or is this one that starts um, at the beginning of the Feast of Hanukkah, um, which we'll get to, because John doesn't explain it. We're at the Feast of Booths, there's a conversation, and then we're at the Feast of Hanukkah. Well, there's a few months gap there, even if it is in the same year. So we don't know exactly when this happened. Um, again, go back two weeks. Paul explains this very well um, in the sermon a couple of weeks ago. So Jesus is still continuing this John 10 passage, this John 10 teaching about himself being the good shepherd and being the gate to the sheepfold. And, and again, when you understand, as we've understood Jesus in a Jewish context, which has changed everything really about our understanding of so much of his teaching in the last hundred years, as we've decided as a church not to be anti-Semitic, but actually to decide like, wait, actually we probably should be understanding them and understanding that perspective and understanding that viewpoint, and it helps us. Well, this is one of those that's really helped us as we understood how they did um, how they did shepherding, where they had this, this, this sheepfold, and, and that way not every shepherd had to stay up all night protecting his sheep. They would take turns, they would hire somebody to watch the sheep at night, and the shepherds could go sleep. And then they would come back to the sheepfold the next morning and would walk through the sheepfold where there might, be, there might be sheep from dozens of different shepherds, and they would come in, and if they were one of the shepherds, they were allowed in, and they would walk through, and according to some, they would walk through talking, and in some cases, some say singing. And they would walk through the sheep singing, and all the sheep who knew the sound of their voice would automatically stand up and follow them. It must have been a really cool picture to see, to see this, this happen. And so the sheep would get up, and the sheep who did not recognize that voice stayed laying down. They didn't move. And so the shepherd would walk through, and all the sheep who his sheep would follow him back out, and he would lead them out to where there was grass and water and safety and all those things. It is such a beautiful picture in so many different ways. If you're a parent, the idea of being a good shepherd, the way you shepherd your spouse, the way you shepherd your children, the way you shepherd your neighborhood, do they know the sound of your voice and is that a good thing? Do they want to follow the sound of your voice? Are they drawn to the sound of your voice? Um, this is something that, that we're trying to, this picture is constant. He gets to this stage and he talks about how there will be sheep from all types of other folds that are really his sheep, and he's going to have to go get them. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Now, the first thing that jumps out at me, especially as a therapist, is this language, For this reason the Father loves me. This immediately is disconcerting to me. I don't like this verse. I don't like this phrase. Um, I need to understand this phrase better because what it sounds like is Jesus is saying, if I didn't do this, my father wouldn't love me. But that really probably has to do with the fact that we're reading it in English. The word that Jesus uses here for love is the agape word, agapeo. The, the word by definition that kind of really means it probably isn't a performance-based love. It is a one-directional love. Agape means I love you. Because I love you. Whether you love me back is irrelevant. Whether, whether you do a good job is not part of the equation, really. Keep in mind, Jesus never, we, we, it is stunning to me how Jesus integrates love and obedience, by the way. 
We, we want to divide those things out as if those are somehow opposed to each other. No, 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 see, because God loves everybody. Yes, he does. And if you love him, you will obey him. Well, now, wait a minute. I don't want to obey him. See, I want all the benefits that come with love and being loved, but I don't want to have to obey. Then what God would say, what Jesus clearly says over and over again, oh, well, but if you loved him, you would obey him. And so this, this concept of if you love, you obey the authority that you love and vice versa, like that's, that's, it's just so inextricable that when Jesus talks about this, it, it can feel backwards to us. Probably more the picture that's being created here is the idea of the, of, of the Father's experience of his love of Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a second. So think about in Philippians, for example, Philippians 2, we see that over and over again, that, <coughs> that, that out of obedience, Jesus suffered he came and experienced life as a human being, not just a human, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant to the point of death, and not just any death, but the death on a cross. And at some point, I think in John, we will spend at least a Sunday talking about the honor-shame culture that the Jewish culture is and was. Um, we don't have an honor-shame culture so much. We have a little bit of one here in the South, um, but America is not an honor-shame culture. Those of you who are from an Asian um, background, especially from the Far East, you would have a much better understanding of what a, an honor-shame culture would be. Um, the Native Americans, many of the, many of the tribes of Native Americans had an honor-shame culture. Ju Judaism, Jew the Jewish faith was an honor-shame culture, which meant to bear shame meant you brought shame on your whole family. For Jesus to die on the cross was considered an ultimate shame. Um, it would have been so shameful to die on the cross. It would have been so shameful to, to die that way. So part of what's so shocking is, is that truth that Jesus bore that shame, that type of death. We'll talk about that a little more. But, but the word that, the fact that agape is used would imply that this isn't God saying, no, no, I love you because of your performance. It's more, I love you in your performance. I love you as you perform. Inspired to love is maybe a better picture. So ladies, some of you who are married and have kids, like, you found yourself, you're working on something and you come in the other room and there's your husband and he's down on the floor playing with the kids, he's wrestling with them, he's building blocks with them or whatever and you feel that sense of love well up in you. That sense of like, wow, like this, look at this guy. And, and, and so that sense of inspired love or, or as a husband, maybe you've come in and just, and just stared at your wife as she's brushing her hair or she's doing some little task or, or something like that and you find yourself or um, if, you're be, if you're really creepy while she's sleeping. Like I'd, that's one of my favorites is for Ginger to wake up and I'm like four inches from her looking at her. She's like, oh my gosh, don't. Like, um, uh, that's, that's the kind of thing. Watching your teenager stand up for what's right. Like that sense of welled up love and pride and, 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 and just, just that you're so proud of what they've done. When you see your, your little kid comfort somebody, when you see your, your child comfort another child who's hurt, on the field or, or scared or something like that, that sense of that, that you have. I was trying to think of an example for a toddler and I can only come back to sleep again. Like <laughs> the love you feel for your toddler when they're sleeping. I think that's about, <laughs> that's kind of about it. But the, um, here's the picture that's being, that's being shown here is this community of love. And here's what's cool, this community of love that is what God is. See, this isn't just something that he has, it is something that he is. This is one of the, for years I was even taught that the whole idea of God being three in one was an academic, fascinating oddity about him. 
But in the last 20 or 30 years, more and more, now this is not that this has been done for the first time, but there's a new real awakening, realization of the significance of God being three and one. That before he had created time, before he had created anything, what you have is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in an eternal community of mutually sacrificial love for one another. That they loved each other in this community of love. And, and you can't have a, you, if, you, if it's just you, you can't love sacrificially. But if, if God's identity is that God is love, what that means is God cannot be merely a mono God. He cannot be, because what that would mean is before he created anything, he could not express sacrificial love. And you're telling me that's part of his identity. Well, since it's part of his identity, he must, by the nature of his own identity, be more than one person, though he is one God. And the logical, not only, not, not only that this becomes fascinating, but it's now people are realizing it's a logical requirement of the nature of God is that God is more than one. And as C.S. Lewis would say, you cannot have just two. When you have God the Father and God the Son, you automatically have God the Spirit. I won't go into that, and we talked about that a few months ago. You can go back and look through the sermons and see the, the two or three weeks we talked about the Trinity. Um, but it's a fascinating thing to realize that, that God is this community of love. So don't read this and go, oh, God the Father loves him only because he obeys. No, no, there's no there's no delineation between Jesus's obedience and the Father's love. They are both eternal. The, the Son perfectly obeys the Father, and the Father limitlessly loves the Son, and that has always been the case since before there was such a thing as always. And so here Jesus is talking, I think Jesus is talking about God looks on the work that I'm doing and is filled with his love for me as he sees me leave these things, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, Jesus came to conquer death. In order to conquer death, he's going to have to experience it. He's going to have to die and face death on its own terms and then win. And that's exactly what he's talking about. I have the authority to lay down my own life. It would be, think about what a powerful message it would be to any one of us if we laid our life down for them. There are people in your life who you know would lay down their life for you, who that they would do that. It's rare, but there's probably a handful of people, hopefully there's a handful of people in your life who you know would do that. Um, to, shepherd, to shepherd someone to the point of life sacrifice would be a great comfort. If you know there's someone in your life who shepherds you in such a way that they would be willing to die for you or kill for you, whatever that required, that they know that. And to know you're shepherded by that, that's a great comfort. There's nothing special, though, really about Jesus in regards to this because many of us would lay down our life for our sheep. There are people in our, she in, in, in our flock that we would lay down our life for, except for the phrase, there's two phrases we're going to get into. The first one is, no one takes it from me. Now, that's an intriguing phrase that Jesus uses here. Um, uh, my son and I were talking about, and, and others, but my son's getting his philosophy degree, and we we're talking a little bit about Nietzsche, and, and that his Superman, his Ubermensch, that this, this, this character who, who he says, this is the perfect human, and this is what 
what this perfect human needs to be like, what, what, what Nietzsche thought the perfect human needs to be like. And one of the things that's so sad is that he pictured Jesus as the worst possible example of the perfect man. That Jesus was weak and Jesus was kind of pathetic is the, is the picture created. And we talked about how what a shame it was that Nietzsche, and, 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 and uh, there's a podcast that talked about this as well, what a shame it is that Nietzsche didn't understand the steel in Jesus Christ. That he didn't understand enough about who Jesus was. A line like this, this is, this is spoken with steely, I don't know, manliness. Can you imagine having the gumption, to, the sand to say this? I lay down my life. Let me make something perfectly clear. No one takes it from me. There's no one out there who can. Anybody want to try? You'll fail. No one has that authority. Remember when The Passion came out, when, uh, when Gibson's movie, the, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion came out, and it, it stirred this huge debate on who killed Jesus, right? All of a sudden, people were concerned about who killed Jesus, right? Um, and so who killed Jesus? Is it, was, it the, was it the Jews who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans who killed Jesus? Was it, was it, and all the Christians would step, all, you know, all, in good faith, the Christians were like, no, no, I killed Jesus, my sin. All, we, we can get all that. Understand, though, at some level, to claim to have killed Jesus is to insult him. You did not kill Jesus. I did not kill Jesus. Now, we may have been, our, we played our part in creating the conditions under which in order to save us, he needed to die. But understand perfectly clearly, in John 10, Jesus makes it absolutely abundantly clear who it was who laid down Jesus' life. It was Jesus. Jesus laid down his life. No one had the authority to do that. No one could do it. And then how about this phrase? This is cool. Like anyone could have that kind of authority to take Jesus' life. He laid down his life 100% of his own accord, under his own authority, by his own power. That's amazing. We could still do that, <coughs> sort of. I could... I could choose to lay down my life for somebody. So the most impressive one is the next phrase, which is, and I have the authority to take it up again. There you go. That's, that's cleaning up after the kids, right? At that point, he has transcended any of us. At that point, he has stepped beyond anything we could even imagine Anything that we'd picture about ourselves. No, no, I'm again, I have the authority to take it back up. Only he could do this. It's a great comfort to have a shepherd who loves us enough to be willing to die for us. Consider the comfort of being the sheep of a shepherd with the heart to lay down his life for us and the power to take it back up again. That's a cool combination. I've said before, it's great that God is our king, it's great that God is our friend, but it's awesome that he is both. Isn't it the best when you know someone who's in a powerful position? I mean, isn't that nice? When you could call on them? Like, that's a great feeling. When it'd be great to be the king, to, to know the king, but to be his best friend, that would be pretty awesome. My guess is there's a lot of perks that come with that. Here you have a, a shepherd, a father, who loves you enough to lay down his life for you but not in a pathetic way, not in, some, not in some sad, weak, defeated way, but in exactly the opposite. He has the authority and the love to lay down his life for you and me. And he has the power to then take it back up again and thereby offer us the same gift. This, this combination, it's incredible. 
This is part of why, men, it is so empowering, it is so important that our children see us as quick to lay down our lives, our desires, our preferences, our wants for our wives. It's important that our kids and other people's kids and other people see that. That they see a gentleness in us. That we love them more than we love ourselves. They need to see that. And our children need to experience us as powerful enough to make a difference. Um, And talking with uh, a friend who was getting married a few weeks ago, I used the, um, some of you guys will understand this. I don't know if I said this since then, but there's a, maybe I did, I think I did in the sermon sometime recently, the Max Brand quote about two types of men. A man who, um, I won't go into all the detail of it, but a man who, um, there are two types of men. There are men who a, a man, a woman must fear, but a man would never have to take seriously. And the other type of men are men that a woman would never need fear, but that all men must take into account. Again, for some of you, that's lost. For some of you, you know exactly what I'm saying. Um, that's, a, that's a great picture. This, this idea that God, the God, the, the shepherd that Jesus Christ is laying out the model for what it means to shepherd people. The word husband means to take care of animals. That's husbandry, right? There are times when it feels that way, all right? Especially fathering, more than husbandry, really. So let's be honest. But the, the idea of taking care of these little sheep, the little cattle, that's, that's the idea of being a shepherd. All right. Only he could clean up this mess. A weak father with a lot of nicety and even the willingness to die can die for us, but he can't protect us. And we're still unsafe. Jesus, the shepherd, dies for us and still protects us. Hebrews 12, which John referenced a minute ago. Therefore, you don't have this one, so it's okay. I added it when John referenced it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. At his death and shame, his authority only increased. Now, when Jesus talks about this in in the population that's there in front of him, he gets done talking about being the good shepherd. Some are comforted, some are angered. Of course, there's yet another division Are you catching on yet that the truth of Jesus Christ is often divisive? That's not new. It's not old. It's it's just always has been. Let's not be offended when that is still the case today, when the truth of Jesus Christ creates division. Hopefully not within the church, but it's always going to create division between those in the church and those outside. Verse 19, there was again a division amongst the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I want to take just a second, especially this time of the year, and reference the fact that this entire conversation is triggered. That last line, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This entire conversation is triggered by a single person being healed. By one person's suffering. One person's suffering is what triggers all of this. Has John 10... So again, I told you I was introduced to John 10 at a youth camp years and years ago. Has the passage John, of John 10, especially verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Has that been a key verse for anybody else in their Christian life? What anybody say? Like this, that tends to be one of the favorites. Yeah. It's not John 3.16, but it's up there. 
right? It's not Romans 8, 28, but it's, it's somewhere in those top 10, I think. Do you realize we get that verse because of the suffering of the blind man? That man's suffering, 2,000 years later, has us still talking about it. Could the, man, could the men at that time, outside maybe of Jesus, have grasped that his suffering would 2,000 years ago be leading to comfort and healing and power and truth for a world full of people? That it would be changing lives? See, here's what's interesting. The problem of evil and suffering is one of those that drives people sometimes away from God. Let me tell you why that confuses me. I understand it, but it also confuses me, and here's why. See, there's no answer to this. There's no good answer for the fact that humans suffer. There's no good answer for the fact that there is evil out there. There are a lot of answers. There's like 20 different buckets. And sometimes people suffer for this reason and sometimes for that reason and sometimes for that reason. Sometimes a combination of reasons. And it can be this person's fault or that person's fault or total somebody else's or someone who died a thousand years ago's fault. It can be like it's, it's so many different things. It can just be we live in a fallen world and there are things like earthquakes and, and tornadoes and, and tsunamis and all these different things. And there's not a great satisfying answer. Just, I'm just telling you, there's not. But there is hope for a satisfying answer offered through Scripture. The hope for the satisfying answer is the answer of redemption. That there will turn out to be a value in suffering. Now, we don't know what it is yet. Sometimes we get to see it, right? Sometimes you can see the value in suffering. A, a common one will be like a miscarriage, which can be an awful, terrible, tragic suffering. But then, but then if you get pregnant within the next few weeks or months and you have a child that would not have been had if that other child had survived, you can at least go, okay, this doesn't make this okay, but at least I can see the redemption in it, right? And it doesn't solve it, but it gives you a little taste of, of what it's like to see, okay, there, maybe there's value in this. Maybe there can be value in suffering. See, Scripture offers us that hope, that there's a value. God is doing something and what he's doing involves our suffering. It involves our suffering. And, and as hard as that is, understand that the atheist response does not reduce the amount of suffering or evil in the world. It just guarantees that there is no value in it. For the atheist, they face the same exact suffering, the same exact evil that the rest of us do, and at the end of it, they have no hope of any explanation for it. They're, the fact that they use the problem of suffering and evil as an argument against Christianity, to me, is a little bit like throwing Br'er Rabbit in the briar patch. Well, at least I can offer hope for redemption for your suffering. There, maybe there's not. But you understand you offer nothing for any of that. Jesus here is using yet, and we're seeing yet another example, a man born blind, suffering however long it was until Jesus heals him and shows his power. And understand, not just healing him in that moment shows power, but for the next 2,000 years, that power has continued to overflow out of the life of a man who suffered. If you could go back and find him, I'm assuming he's in heaven. When we get to have that conversation in heaven, would, and you go, so what do you think? Was it worth it? You th do you think he'll have a hard time with that answer? I mean, when you get to go to the seminar by the man born blind to explain what happened and tell the whole story, and I think heaven's going to be like series of seminars, but I like seminars. Maybe the rest of you are like, 
But I'm like, I want to see King David's seminar on the Psalms. Like, I want to take David's class on the Psalms. Like, seems like he would be the person to take, right? Anyway, um, so <laughs> it's going to be tough on those preachers who are going to be like, hey, I'm preaching, I'm preaching through Mark. I'm like, yeah, but, but, it's, but Mark's teaching it at the same time. So <laughs> going to Mark's, I'm going to Mark's class on Mark. Um, so, um, okay, so this is a, how do we, so here's, the, here's the thing that strikes me in all of this. When we jump back to John 10 in a few weeks, here's what I, <laughs> I want us to do in the next couple of weeks. How do we live as his sheep? I'd like to take a few weeks to check on north again. Um, so I grew up out in the woods, walking around in the woods all the time. Um, and so one of the funny things that people do, if you don't know this, and, and did a survival school and all that kind of stuff at one point in my life, is that, is that people, people walk in circles in the woods. Um, it's, it's really kind of humorous that people do that when they're lost in the woods. And they, if you've ever been lost in the woods and you've come back to where you were like an hour before and you realize, like, wait, I've passed this tree. I've passed this rock. Like, yes, because you're probably doing a, a broad circle in the woods if you don't know otherwise. So even if you don't have a compass, the way you're supposed to walk in a straight line is you pick two or three things in a straight line and you walk toward the last one. And when you get to it, you then turn around and you line up things behind you. And you, that's the only way to walk in a straight line in the woods. Otherwise, you will, you'll wander all over the place. Um, it's, it's really wild. And that's assuming you don't like have a limp or something, in which case you're certainly going to walk in a hard circle, right? That's how that works. There's a passage, Jesus references this um, in Luke 9, 62. Again, I've never done this, but the principle is still the same. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is very specific language. Some of you may be old enough to have ever to have operated a plow, maybe even just on a tractor that you've operated plows on a tractor. How do you keep it in a straight line? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, how do you drive a tractor in such a way that the line is straight when you get to the other end? Well, what, they, what you have to do is you have to mark endpoints or find endpoints on the end, and you head straight for that. So let's imagine you're walking behind the mule with the plow like this, and you're following that line, and you look back. What's going to happen? Right? Looking back is a bad idea when you're operating a plow. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't operate a plow and keep looking back. That's not how this works. You follow me or you don't is the context of the passage. Follow me or don't. Halfway, like Mr. Miyagi, right? Karate guess so, like great. That's how that works. You either do it, you follow him, or and this is, this is the principle that's there. We're not good at it, but is this where our heart is? The idea um, that my... One of my favorite lines from all the Star Wars movies, which is one of the worst delivered ever, is the, is the line, somebody's going to know it, stay on target, right? You don't veer to the left or the right. As a church, I think it's important that periodically, so the, the staff does this regularly, the leadership board does it every couple of weeks, but as a whole church for us to periodically ask ourselves, are we on target? Is our eye still on him? It is so easy for a church to meander. It's so easy for a church to end up wandering in circles. It's so easy for us to get distracted by things that don't really matter. One of the things you did when you hired the staff you did at this church is that this is a staff who says no to things. That's not easy on a staff. But it's one of the things we do. The reason is because we know how hard it can be to stay on target. There's always so many good things to do. What's one of my favorite things about having Paul McKenzie on our staff is Paul is one of those great people that's saying like, is this, is this what we do? 
Because I'm, I'm, I'm good at that, but I'm nowhere near good at it as he is. I'm a little bit towards that like, let's do this and this. We talked about, Ginger and I talked about my personality type. The, the heaven for my personality type is all the adventures are open to us and all, my, all the people I love want to come along. That's fun. But you can kind of end up like oh, all over the place if you're not careful. And so you also need people to surround yourself with people with the wisdom to say like, is that what we do though? Or is this, is this what we... So that's why we often will say no to stuff. And we say no to ourselves about 10 times more often than you hear it. So this is a, that's a healthy thing for a church to be asking itself regularly. But what does it mean to be his people, following his way? So we're going to take a few weeks to ask ourselves, we light these candles, love, hope, peace, joy. Do they really describe us? Does that Christ candle truly define us? Are we following our shepherd well? Or... Are we being distracted by all the things that can distract sheep who are prone to wander? Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? We, like sheep, have this propensity of going astray. So in an effort to make sure that the divisions created between the church and the world are between the church and the world and not within the church, we're going to spend a few weeks talking about this. The church and this church why do churches exist? Why does the church exist? What is the plan for navigating the future as a church in the United States? As a friend who is a pastor recently told me, the cozy relationship between the church and state is at an end. And we're going to have to reevaluate what it means to be a church in the United States. Who's doing Are people actually asking that question? Are they staying behind closed doors? Or are they really talking about that? So what do we do? In such a politically divided country, how do we as a church operate with that? We have people within this congregation of very different political views. How do you do that when it turns out, according to a recent survey, 40% of people think the other political party is evil. Evil. So how do you live in the same church? How do you work with people in the same church who they're part of a party who you think is evil? Not just wrong, not just mistaken, not just misdirected, but evil. Man, that's, <coughs> that's tough. What is the role of the church in various crises and issues that, once again, the human government is failing to solve? Why are we always caught off guard by that? There's a huge surprise, right, that human solutions are not helpful. I'm a, I'm a fan of a, of a website called the Demotivators, uh, despair.com. The, 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 devo, the, the demotivational, it's actually, this is a demotivational uh, coffee mug. It has the running of the bulls on it. It's the one I have every Sunday. It says tradition. Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of this. One of this shows the, shows the um, Capitol building. And it says, you think, our, you think our problems are bad? Just wait till you see our solutions. That's a, this is part of, of, of what it means. So what about as we face persecution? Could that happen over the next 10 or 20 years, even in the United States? It might. And, and very real. What, so what do we do with that? What about the shrinking of the mainline denominations. As we see churches around us closing our doors more and more often, it's gonna happen. What about abuse scandals that are happening in other churches and other denominations? What happens if that hits our denomination? What if it turns out that there's some of that going on in our denomination and it's been hushed up like it has been in others? How are we as a church, as the church, how are we prepared to deal with some of these things, these scandals? I, even to the point of like, I would love, if you have questions that you would say like, I'd love to hear thoughts on this as regards to our church and the church, send them in, and, and if we don't talk about them, we'll, we'll respond in some other way. But I want us to be having these conversations as a church 
but understanding that the purpose is to be in alignment with our shepherd. How do we keep alignment with our shepherd? We've, we've talked about ourselves being a flock. We've talked about ourselves being his school. We've talked about being his disciples. We've even talked about he describes himself as the light of the world and how he calls on us to be the light of the world. Excuse me, how he calls us the light of the world. Not a, that's not a performance thing, that's an identity thing. All of these are things we refer to when we talk about the church. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, ambassadors of Christ, the sons and daughters, the household of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Each of these, whether practical or analogy, teach us something important about who we are. And as we're looking at false shepherds and fake gates, I want to make sure that this is a conversation we're having. We have a teacher, a leader, a guide, a shepherd, a king, and a groom who leads, loves, gives, serves, rules. A community of followers who do it his way. We're going to look at when and where and under what conditions he founded his church. But here's my thesis. My thesis statement is that, that you can describe the church this way. That this is what the church is. The church is, quote, we are his. And, and I would put a period there. But, but it seems like there's always a descriptor to go with it. And there's so many different descriptors that go with it. Ambassadors. Children. Beloved. Possession, treasure, servants, nation, priests, students, temple, people, workmanship, bride, sheep, body. What is being said about who we are, the fact that those are used to end this sentence over and over again? We are his. And fundamentally, that is what it means to be the church, is to be his. But we have all these great descriptors that go with it. We are his what? Well, at some level, we are just his. There's the invisible church, those who are his. There's the visible church, those who are at church. Those aren't necessarily the same. But those who have entrusted him, who have followed him, who seek his leadership, who, I mean, all these different language that comes with this, what does it mean to live this out as the church and as a church? So for the next few, next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this. Next week, I'll start with the word we. What unites us? And what doesn't have to unite us? And what are, what are we allowed to be unified in even though we do not have uniformity in? Um, I think that'll be a great conversation as well. Today, what I want you to hear most importantly is that we have a shepherd. And the shepherd loves you so much that he expresses his power and authority by laying down his life for you and for me. And the good news is he's not just some weak person who took a bullet for us, he took that bullet and then he got back up again. And he still leads and still protects and still loves, but now he leads us in a new way to the point of life and life eternal. This is a shepherd worth following no matter what it costs us. It's better. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to continue this Thank you so much for the opportunity to be in a church like this. God, I, I tell people all the time what an awesome, free, and fun place this is to be a pastor. Um, I'm so excited to, to be here with these people. Um, God, my family and my friends, <coughs> it's, such a, it's such an amazing thing to be a part like this. I never could have foreseen this. Father, I'm so grateful for it, and I know so many others are as well. Father, I pray that you would protect us as only you can. Be, you be our vision. 
You be our best thought. Um, You be our wisdom. You provide our purpose and our identity. Lord, help us to um, only follow anything else if it follows you. Otherwise, Lord, I, (coughs) I pray you would set us apart to be different because we are yours. Thank you, Father, that that is true at the individual level, that each of us can be yours, your son and your daughter and your ambassadors and your treasure, and that all of us get to be yours, your community, your nation, your priesthood, your bride, your body. God, I pray we'll be moved enough by that that it will break us of our pride, of our will, and strengthen us with the power that only your salvation and the joy thereof can bring us. Thank you, Father, for this in your son's name. Amen.